this morning for our worship and in connection with the instruction of the Heidelberg Catechism, we're going to read 2 Corinthians 8, 2 Corinthians 8, both chapters 8 and 9 of this book are very closely related to the subject matter of the Catechism on the Eighth Commandment. Um, I'll set this up for you a bit. The Apostle is sending Titus to the Corinthians. And he's sending there for one purpose, which is to pick up a collection that they had promised. You will recall the Apostle had recently written them a rather harsh letter, a letter that is very unlike all the other letters the Apostle wrote in that there's not a so-called doctrinal and then a practical section, but the whole letter is practical. And the whole letter really is about love. That they weren't living in love, but they were living schismatically. There was schism everywhere in the church. He was harsh, had to deal with them on many practical matters, including incest that was going without discipline in the church. But he had talked to him about a collection. They were going to take a collection for the saints in Jerusalem who were undergoing famine and were impoverished. And he uses this now to talk to them about that. He um, wants to make sure that they're going to carry through on their promise. And he begins by encouraging them to give liberally by pointing out to the saints to them, the saints in the north. Greece is divided into two big sections, Macedonia in the north and Achaia in the south. Corinth was in the south, Achaia. And the saints in the north, Macedonia, were generally poor. And he points to them and he shows the Corinthians how they had given so liberally, sort of as a goad to them. And he urges the Corinthians also to give. And then he moves on. And that leads also to chapter 9, where he talks about free and, free and cheerful giving. But anyway, with that in mind, let's read this section. 2 Corinthians 8. Moreover, brethren, we do you to wit of the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia, how that in a great trial of affliction... The abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded unto the riches of their liberality. For to their power, I bear record, yea, and beyond their power, they were willing of themselves, praying us with much entreaty that we would receive the gift and take upon us the fellowship of the ministering to the saints. And this they did, not as we hoped, but first gave their own selves to the Lord and unto us by the will of God, insomuch that we desired Titus, that as he had begun, so he would also finish in you the same grace also. Therefore, as ye abound in everything, in faith and utterance, knowledge, and in all diligence, and in your love to us, see that ye abound in this grace also. 
I speak not by commandment, but by occasion of the forwardness of others, and to prove the sincerity of your love. For ye know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that ye through his poverty might be rich. And herein I give my advice, for this is expedient for you who have begun before not only to do but also to be forward a year ago. Now therefore perform the doing of it, that as there was a readiness to will, so there may be a performance also out of that which ye have. For if there be first a willing mind, it is accepted according to that a man hath, and not according to that he hath not. For I mean not that other men be eased and ye burdened, but by an equality, that now at this time your abundance may be a supply for their want, that their abundance also may be a supply for your want, that there may be equality. As it is written, he that had gathered much had nothing over, and he that had gathered little had no lack. But thanks be to God, which put the same earnest care into the heart of Titus for you. For indeed he accepted the exhortation, but being more forward of his own accord, he went unto you. And we have sent with him the brother whose praise is in the gospel throughout all the churches, and not that only, but who was also chosen of the churches to travel with us with this grace, which is ministered by us to the glory of the same Lord and declaration of your ready mind. Avoiding this, that no man should blame us in this abundance, which is administered by us, providing for honest things, not only in the sight of the Lord, but also in the sight of men. And we have sent with them our brother, whom we have oftentimes proved diligent in many things, but now much more diligent upon the great confidence which I have in you. Whether any do inquire of Titus, he is my partner and fellow helper concerning you. Or our brethren be inquired of, they are the messengers of the churches and the glory of Christ. Wherefore, show ye to them and before the churches the proof of your love and of our boasting on your behalf. We read that far in God's holy word. And we consider now the Lord's Day 42 and the Eighth Commandment. What doth God forbid in the Eighth Commandment? God forbids not only those thefts, and robberies, which are punishable by the magistrate, but he comprehends under the name of theft all wicked tricks and devices whereby we design to appropriate to ourselves the goods which belong to our neighbor, whether it be by force or under the appearance of right, as by unjust weights, owls, measures, fraudulent merchandise, false coins, usury, or by any other way forbidden by God as also all covetousness, all abuse and waste of his gifts. But what doth God require in this commandment? 
that I promote the advantage of my neighbor in every instance I can or may and deal with him as I desire to be dealt with by others. Further also that I faithfully labor so that I may be able to relieve the needy. By way of introduction this morning, I simply want to set forth before you how broad is this commandment and what it covers. Even as the seventh commandment is really the sole and only commandment, beside the tenth, of course, the tenth covers all the commandments, the seventh covers our sexuality and the use of our body in the realm of the sexual life, so also this commandment covers the entire visible, earthly, physical sphere of property and goods, even gifts. In a very real sense, this single short commandment, thou shalt not steal, covers everything you can see and touch. It covers <clears throat> the whole world of politics. Much of politics and government concerns this earthly physical life. We know the government was given a physical sword and a physical duty in this world. The realm of kings and princes is governed by this commandment. The world of politics. If you examine politics, whether it be the politics of the left, which tends toward communism and socialism, or the politics of the right, which concerns individual rights and individuality, all of that is governed by this commandment. And you can see that in the politics. Communism doesn't recognize any personal property. And under the guise of equality, which sounds like a very biblical and good concept, which is why the false church is always interested in it, but it's a godless view, which is why socialism and communism always operates without God and evicts God and is really God's judgment on a society and culture that has rejected God. God gives them what they want, a godless society and politics and government. And the result is utter misery for all but a select few. But then you go to the left, or to the right rather, and individualism you will discover is all about my property. It's about keeping what's mine. It's all about me, myself, and I, and protecting what I have with a gun or bullets or what have you. This is all governed by this single commandment. This is the commandment that governs the sphere of most of your life. Everything that you have and wear and put on, everything that you do at your work, your job, the whole area of employment. Simply look at science and industry What's it doing? It's using, manipulating, building, tearing down all things that are governed by this commandment. The whole area of what we call environmentalism. How do we use 
this world? And what way is it to be used? Is all governed by this commandment. And any views that do not regard this commandment are wrong. And often wrong things are done in the name of Scripture. In the name of this commandment. So I want to just bring that to your attention first of all. How broad is this commandment? The second thing is really this. We're going to this morning look at this commandment from a little bit different view, much like what we did in the last commandment, which is consider this commandment from the perspective of God. Even as we considered last time that exactly because God owns us and bought us with His own blood, that God purchased us in a very unique way that sexual sin is sin against the Lord's body and to use the Lord's body in sin. So this morning we're going to consider the same thing here. We're going to assume and later actually bring out in more detail that all things belong to God and therefore all stealing and all theft is stealing and theft from God. And then when you consider how broad this is, and you realize how not only is our society a thieving and stealing and robberous society and culture, but that is our nature too. So consider with me stealing from the Lord this morning, stealing from the Lord, the sin, the principle, and the motivation. <clears throat> Again, beloved, when we consider the law of God, our interest in what exactly it forbids and also what it requires is not in all the fine details as such. And this commandment indeed covers very broadly and specifically our behavior, our attitudes toward property and gifts and abilities. That should be clear. It has to do with abuse of gifts. Notice that word, abuse of gifts. Waste of gifts. Waste is covered on this commandment. It has to do with not only things like armed robbery, and theft, theft, the difference between robbery and theft is, is that theft is to steal without someone knowing about it. Trickery. Robbery is to take under force with a gun or a knife or a threat. It covers not only those things covered by the magistrate, those things which when this commandment was written was punishable by death, in many cases. You stole, you were hung. But <clears throat> our attitude, and that's brought out when you look at the fact that it brings out what God requires. Here again, the unique view of the Christian, the Reformed Christian, comes out in this Lord's Day when you have a commandment which seems only to forbid something certain behavior, 
And it goes on and says that's far, far more than stealing. It's, it's covering the gamut, all kinds of trickery and devices, even abuse and waste of gifts, but it requires something, something positive. And you'll notice that even when it talks about outward actions, dealing, positively it requires that I deal with my neighbor a certain way. I promote his or her advantage. And it talks about faithful labor so that I might give. All outward actions, I think even the children here understand that behind that is an attitude. In order to promote the advantage of the neighbor, in order to deal with the neighbor a certain way, there has to be something in the heart. And that's even implied in the Lord's Day when, I hope you notice, it even quotes the golden rule. The golden rule is not something that was imagined by some wise man. The golden rule is the biblical rule. Deal with others as you want to be dealt with. That's found right here. And it's here not because it's a good, worldly, wise way to live, but it is the heart of the commandments. The heart of all the commandments, and especially here now, is deal with others exactly how you would want to be dealt with in this situation or that one. So that implies something inwardly. If you're going to now behave outwardly toward someone in your behavior, it requires you look in your heart and say, now, how would I want? How would I will or desire? That's an inward action to be dealt with. Now, this commandment, therefore, is extremely, extremely broad. And yet, this commandment puts really everything in its place. What we need to do this morning is look at this commandment as is intended by the Lord and is our purpose this morning. Not simply to say, now let's look at all these check boxes. The minister is going to list about 50 of them. Let's see how many we can check off. But actually look at and see how really far short we come. And we need to do that this morning because it is also in regard to this commandment we say, I'm, I'm good. I've never pulled a gun or a knife and robbed my neighbor. I've never really cheated anyone in business. I'm, I'm really relatively free of worry about this commandment. And the exact opposite is true. Every single one of us ought to be and should be convicted in the depths of our soul how much of a thief and a robber we really, really are. And that's the purpose of everything here. And we can do that simply by pointing out that this commandment puts everything in its right place. How does it do that? Well, just consider this. Compare, compare number one, all the rules and regulations of your government whether it be a local, a state, or the federal government that concerns property, 
and business. Stacks and stacks of precepts and rules and decisions. Courts that deal with this thing non-stop. When there's a divorce, what's the great issue? Usually it's the dividing of property. In fact, usually the children are divided much more easily than the property is. What is it that concerns everyone in this world? Material goods, in one way or another. Even those that seem to be content and live a rather austere life are involved in this vast area of the world and life. They are concerned. They may seem to be content with relatively little. And that is, people even of the world have that. You will find them. Not everybody is filled with all the glamour that's touted on the internet and by all the influencers. Just look at that. What is it? When you peruse the internet, when you look at your own phone, what is it that's being promoted all the time? And the answer is material goods and wealth. Look at the great, happy, joyful, wonderful life that I'm living, even though most of the time it's even a lie. There's people that get incredibly rich simply flaunting what they've been given from God, whether it's gold and silver and houses and cars, or whether it's physical traits and abilities. This is the world in which we live in, and it's the world you live in. And the great danger is you think this is the way it is, this is the way it's supposed to be. This is, this is the world of the Christian And we don't even consider how much we've been influenced by this. We have. We think that we have a right to this or that. To simply compare now not simply the world, which is frightening. How many wars have been started over material goods, land, and property? How many divorces? How much murder? How much adultery has behind it not simply covetousness, but an actual desire to take, to relieve another of their goods? This governs politics. This governs all of our society. And you can't say it doesn't influence you because... That same covetousness that drives the world is in our heart. So we have to do a comparison. We have to compare all those laws, all those thoughts, all these talk, everything that's on the internet. Just simply look at the words and the deeds and the actions of men. And they all involve property, money, gifts, abilities. Even with regard to the environment and the world. Much of the environmental concern isn't really over the environment as such. They have no concern over it as God's world. They have no real concern over the abuse and waste of His gifts. The question is, is who, who gets this? Who gets to use it? Who gets to benefit from it? 
That's what the battle's really about. Who can get rich and wealthy? Who can lord it over others with that rich and wealth? And then you have God's attitude. Look at his attitude. Look at what he thinks. He even comes to us and says, I'm going to give you one commandment. It's going to cover all this. Thou shalt not steal. And that little short commandment is really everything that you need to govern your attitude in life toward all this. You don't need a million laws, not really. Well, you really do, because that's how corrupt man is. But God gives his law to those whom he relieved from bondage. And he comes to us even this morning. Not simply as depraved, wicked, in our heart and nature people, but as those whom he's redeemed and redeemed from the bondage of Egypt. And he says, really, in my kingdom and among my people, all you need is one commandment. And even in the negative, it should say everything that needs to be said. Then look at the scriptures themselves. Now, certainly, if you go through scriptures, there's a lot that's said about property and how to deal with it. But keep in mind a couple things. Number one, behind it all, any instruction on it really is this commandment. So the apostle to the Corinthians, he has a couple of chapters on giving. Out of two whole books, he has just two chapters on giving. And notice very carefully how he proceeded. He didn't come along and force the people to give. That would be taxation. Now, he did try to motivate them by pointing to churches that were very poor, that were liberal in their giving. He even uses a little influence on the Corinthians, which you should see not as untoward, but very wise. When he comes to the Corinthians to give, he makes clear, I'm not commanding you, I'm not telling you what to give and how much to give, but I am going to remind you of what you claim to be. You claim to have all faith and knowledge. You claim to be the greatest church that we have. You claim to have all these wonderful gifts of the Spirit. You can speak in tongues. You even talk about what you have there in Corinth. Corinth is a very rich city, and you claim to be part of that. Now, take all that in mind, so that when Titus comes there, he doesn't have to round up money, give. That says something. You look in the Old Testament, and there are commandments about property. In, in fact, it's very striking how many there actually are. As a family, we've been reading through De Deuteronomy lately, and it's interesting how there's all these commandments that govern property, what they may do and not do with their property. But if you look at them closely, you're going to discover there's a principle behind all them. This is a principle that we're going to talk about more in the second point, but I'll bring it out right here. And that is love for the neighbor. Love for the neighbor. If the neighbor's ox wanders off and the neighbor's nowhere to be found, you may turn away. You have to go find his ox, go chase it down, capture it, bring it back, and then feed it at your own expense. And when your neighbor comes back, bring it back to him. You're required to do that. 
You're required to do this and that with your land and your property. If you are gleaning your crops and you cut down all your grain, your oats, and you put them in sheaves, and then you go to collect those and you forget one, you may go back and pick it up. You're going to leave it there. Because that's for the fatherless, that's for the widow, that's for the orphan, that's, that's for them to live off. You get to go through your grape vines once, glean all your grapes. Don't go back. If there's grapes that ripen after the fact, those are again for the poor. The, God, the laws regarding who you could enslave or taking pledges, that is, what you could put down as a collateral for a loan. There were certain things you couldn't do because they would destroy a man if he lost them. Now you look at those and you say, well, that, that's a lot of laws, but realize what's behind them. What's behind them is the Lord's trying to govern our attitude toward property. And you see that what the Bible is teaching us, what God is teaching us, is that it mayn't have the place that it does by nature in us. It may not be. We may not allow our natural passions and desires to govern us as Christians, not those who belong to God. It's striking. And here sometime it is almost a little bit humorous because here the people of God seem to pay attention to God's Word because they notice this and so they like to use it as a reason to, again, keep more money for themselves. It's very thinly disguised, but it does happen. And that's when God's prophets were sent. They, they all were known for their poverty. They're, even those that seem to have royal connections, like Isaiah, lived very austere lives. Didn't have much. And then there's our Lord Jesus Christ. If you need any real view of what God thinks about money and property and all that. Just simply consider him. Foxes have dens and birds have nests, but I don't even have a place to lay my head. He was fine with that. When they finally crucified him and they took what property he did have, he had a cloak and a tunic. That's it. That's it. Nothing else. Well, God was teaching something there. And the point is that no one can say that God is making them in His image without realizing that that's the image. That that's the one that we ought to resemble. And it's someone who has absolutely no passion, no concern whatsoever about earthly property. You say, it's too much. No, it's not too much. It's what, it's what being a Christian is all about. Being a Christian is all about realizing what true riches are. God tells us, even in the passage we read, that God made us rich. And that's got nothing to do with coin and cars and houses. And in fact, one can say that until that is one's attitude, he really knows very little, if anything, of what it means to be like Christ. Or ought to question 
whether they are governed by the Spirit of Christ. God in this commandment lays out both negatively and positively what a Christian looks like, what someone who belongs to the kingdom of heaven looks like. And remember that. The commandments come, and they not only tell us this is where you fall short, and where you fall short, make no mistake, this is sin, and this is sin that God must forgive. You must recognize his sin. But the commandments also set forth what we are and what we shall be. I can guarantee you, if you doubt me on this, that when the kingdom is perfected, the perfection proposed in a life to come that you read about at the very end of the law, that is, in the great kingdom of heaven, when Christ has come and made all things new, you and I will be more rich than you can possibly imagine. All that is in the creation, all that is in that new, grand, and glorious creation will be ours, and only ours. And you will lack nothing. And at the same time, there will be no covetousness, no desire for more, no thought that says, I've got to turn my life into a turmoil so I can get more and more and more. I want what my neighbor has. I'm going to steal it from him. In fact, the attitude that's the positive will reign. What I desire more than anything else is the advantage of my neighbor. Now, if you think how different is God's view than our view, simply look at that. This is really what exposes much of the socialism that is the kind pushed by the false church. Many in the church who go by the name of Christian and promote love and giving and all these things are really promoting an unbiblical socialism and communism where God really does not exist and has no place. And proof for it is... None of them are really interested in what's set forth here about the advantage and salvation of the member. And it shows in one way or another. Because as soon as you look at that, you say, well, then how do I stay in business? How do I keep anything for myself? And it never crosses our mind that you really don't need much to live. Oh, yes, we do not promote the view of the monks and those especially who took vows of poverty, that they were going to live their life a certain impoverished life, as if that were all automatically by itself holy, or would make one holy, it doesn't. Covetous still reigns there. Nevertheless, that shows the extent of what we ought to be able to give and be willing to give for the advantage of salvation. God gave me a million dollars. And all my neighbors here have nothing. So I'm going to give everything except my daily bread away. Now, how far away is that from what even we consider to be very generous giving? There are people that are very generous in the church. In many points of view, I could say what the apostle did. Generally, overall, members of the Protestant Reformed churches are very generous in their giving. I've told people that. 
I may do what the apostle does. There's a lot of things we support and we give to, and we then can't spend that money on ourselves. And yet, at the same time, at the same time, it's never enough. And if you look, even there we sin. Which one of us would be willing to live in some of the homes that our Filipino brothers and sisters live in? And live just fine. They live just fine. And give all the way a rest. We, we're not. For the advantage and salvation. Well, we, we desire their advantage to salvation to a point, but, but not to that point. See, there you go. So, in the first place, we ought to see the sin for what it is. The, the sin is partly covetousness, and partly we think far more of earthly goods and property than we ought. We think that because we've bought into the world and culture which we live in is, that's what makes us happy. If I ask you, how was your day? How was your week? How was your year? Almost always our answer to that question, if we're going to answer honestly, is related to property, money, jobs. Even health and strength you may look at from that point of view. Oftentimes, sad to say, we're depressed and down because we have health problems, not because they hinder our worship of God or they hinder our ability to help others, but they hinder our ability to make money or to be happy with regard to the property that we have and to have fun. Truly, with regard to a Christian's life, and Kelvin, if you really want to read something about Kelvin, that's amazing, read him on this. That true Christian liberty and freedom is that one is absolutely free from any desire, any want, any concern about everything that's covered under this commandment that he says is a Christian. A Christian doesn't care if he has a million dollars or one dollar. His attitude is the same. That's what governs his life when he gets up on Monday morning. And it's the same attitude he has when he comes to church. That's what we have to see, brothers and sisters, is our sin. So that maybe when we came in here this morning, we said this commandment has very little to say to me. We ought to say, no, it has everything to say to me. It has everything to say to me. Perhaps maybe even some of the things that God does in our lives are pointing at that. Maybe indeed that's the reason God has set some things your way. Because he's saying something to us. You, my dear son or daughter, are entirely far too focused on material and physical things. And you've forgotten, or you minimize, or you don't care anything about the riches of the kingdom of heaven. Now, the principles behind this. There's a lot of them. There's a lot of them. But there's one that overrules them all, which is that everything belongs to God. And this is a biblical principle that comes up time and time again. Job acknowledged it. What was the thing Job acknowledged? The Lord gave, the Lord took away. What am I going to say? We look at Job and we say, unbelievable. Lost his entire family, all his children... 
lost everything except his wife who said, curse God and die, and he's left with three miserable friends. Everybody else deserts him. Everybody else leaves him. He loses everything. We say, unreal. Well, right. But Job's confession still was, the Lord gave me all those things. And so he has the right to take them away. Look at the attitude of Agur with regard to what God gives him, even in his prayer. He prays, don't give me too much. When's the last time you prayed that? Lord, don't give me too much. Don't give me too much, lest I become proud and unthankful. That's something to remember, because it governs it all. There's not one thing that you can genuinely, in an absolute sense, call your own. Now, don't forget, the Bible makes clear, the Heidelberg Catechism makes clear, there is such a thing as personal property. God is not a communist, a socialist, whereby he confiscates everything and says there's nothing that really belongs to you in any sense whatsoever. No, no, no. That comes out in so many ways, even with regard to giving. God loves and desires His free will giving. Giving that comes from the heart. Based on these principles, of course. Not just rules like tithes and taxation. God recognizes that He gives some things to you and some things to me, which is why you can have a commandment, Thou shalt not steal. If everything strictly belonged to God without it being my property in any sense whatsoever, you could not steal from me and I couldn't steal from you. At the most I could say I'm just simply redistributing God's wealth. But that's why there's a sin against stealing. There is none of that. There ought not be none of that. The idea is that God owns everything and He distributes it exactly how He sees fit. You may look with envy at this man over here in the church who seems to have everything, millions and millions of dollars, time to do whatever he wants, to go here and there and everywhere. And you have to remember, God gave him that. And you may look at that man and say, well, that man doesn't give near as much as he could. Look at the burden that I have to pay in the Christian school because that man doesn't give nearly as much as he could. And there's probably a point to that. There probably is a very good point to that, that far too many of our families pay far too much for school tuition because those who have plenty don't give more even than the much that they give. But be that as it may, that's not your call. That's not your jurisdiction. That's not for you to say, God gave and God can take away. And that man will be responsible before God. Don't forget that. Behind the principle that God goes everything is the principle of stewardship that the Bible teaches. And that is, God will require an accounting. And this is what makes us ought to all fall on our knees before God and say, what a sinner I am. Our life is short, but God's going to give you 80, maybe 90, perhaps 100 years of life. And He's going to say, what'd you do with my time? What'd you do with the time? <laughs> it's not just with money. Let's count up the money that I gave you in your life. Where even if you're poor, it's going to be quite a sum. And now let's look. How much did you give to poor Lazarus that's laying there at your porch? 
And let's count how many times you stepped over him without dropping even a quarter out of your pocket for him. Let's look and count up how much went into the collection plate. But it, it's a lot. Wow, look at, look at all I give for this and that. Yeah, but let's, let's do some comparisons. You're going to find out we're covetous and we're sinful. But God requires of us that. That's taught about stewardship, and we tend to forget that. We think we're only accountable to Uncle Sam. We're accountable to maybe the elders. We're accountable to some people who can see from the outside. No, no. No, 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 no. You see, beloved, there's more to think about when you're going to write that check for your new toy. There's more to think about when you're going to upgrade your home. It's not just the issue of what we borrow. We borrow far too much to buy. But hey, money's free. No, it's not. No, it's not. There's a cost everywhere. God gives an accounting. He wants an accounting. Abuse and waste of his gifts. And don't forget, God judges abuse far different than we do. Waste. He governs far different than we do. We don't think we abuse anything. We don't think we waste anything. Our attitude is, if it's mine, I can do with it what I want. No, no, you can't. There's things to think about. And how often do you think about your neighbor? How often do you really think about your neighbor? Oh yeah, I know. You run over with some meals. You run over with some food. We say we're praying for you. And it's just the equivalent of what the Lord said, be warm and be filled. But we don't give them anything to warm themselves or to fill themselves. So the principle is, number one, God owns everything, and you're just a steward. And number three is what I brought up in the first point. You have a call not just to love God and then show that love by showing that you truly love God and not money, love God and not your car and house. Don't forget, right here is where we're confronted about even personal relationships. might not think of them in that terms, but this commandment governs people and attitudes toward people. In the Old Testament, it governed even the ideas of slavery. But you're called to love your neighbor. And in Christian terms, what that means is that I want him to have so that there's no lack. Not just that I want him to have enough, but I want them to have no lack. Notice how the Apostle puts it. I would like them to even be at a level that I'm at. We say, well, that's not right. There's that. We, we, no, no, Paul has no problem saying, in the Christian sphere, our aim is equality. There's nothing wrong with that. It may be coerced, it may be taken, but is that the way you look at your poor neighbor, whether it's outside the church or inside the church? And the answer is no, we don't. Our standards are much different than that. Well, they got their daily bread, that's enough. Pretty much the equivalent of let them eat cake. No. Love of the neighbor is exactly how it puts it here. How would you want to be treated? How would you want people to deal with you if you were in their shoes or living in their house 
or you had those conditions. Anything short of that, beloved, is sin and sinful. It's not what we call it. It's not what we think of it. Now, what's the motivation for this? How does God motivate us, move us, or doesn't He? Some say He doesn't do that. That's not true. <laughs> read the Scriptures and read the very Scriptures we read. In that Second Corinthians 8, did you notice what the motivation was? He used a couple. I pointed them out already. But the one that's most important is Christ Himself. You see, to live rightly with regard to money and property to not to steal, to be content. Those are all acts of faith. That's what faith does and only faith can do. And what does faith cling to? Christ. Now let's look at Christ. There's your motivation. And you may simply look at Christ and say, well, great, He's the one that forgives my sins. He's the one that forgives my idolatry. He's going to forgive all this terrible ways that I've dealt with my neighbor. He's going to forgive all my infidelity with regard to being a good steward. But it's true. And if now that's true... If indeed you believe in that Christ, if now, in fact, you trust and believe in that Christ to forgive your sins, then that means His Spirit is in you. And if His Spirit is in you, you're going to look like Him. Now you do that. And let's look at Him. Though He was rich, and rich in the absolute sense of the word, rich in that He had everything, far more than the little piddly amounts that even the riches of us has. Piddly, piddly amounts. Christ was rich. And he became poor. And why did he become poor? Because he just wanted to? No. Paul says he became poor so that you through him might be rich. Now he's not simply saying that for a reason. The apostle is saying that because he wants the Christians who have faith to reflect on that Christ. To examine him and look at him. And then compare themselves to him. And to compare themselves to him, not simply so that we can walk away and say, Yep, I'm a sinner. And I'd better get on my knees and repent of all my covetousness and all my greed and all my envy. All which is so much at the root of so much evil and wickedness. But that one is convicted to give, just like the Apostle did, and said, that's the way I'm going to live. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father, which art in heaven, O Lord, forgive our sins, our theft, our robbery, our tricks and devices, even the attitude that we have toward the neighbor, where we desire to be rich on his back, not only but refuse to give what we ought to give. Forgive, O oh Lord, all our covetousness, the desire to have more and more, to measure our life according to what we have, and thus even robbing Thee, not only of material goods, but Thy glory and honor. O oh Lord, forgive us, and continue, continue to grant unto us thy grace and Holy Spirit, so that more and more we are conformable to thee and live as thine image. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.